from 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News. Today we bring you Revolut raises $800 million to become the UK's most valuable fintech, Soldo raises $180 million for its business expenses platform, and an IPO roundup as Robinhood seeks a valuation as high as $35 billion, while Paytm wants to raise $2.2 billion. All this and more on today's show. But before we start, we just want to tell you about something we're cooking up at 11FS and a quick word from our sponsors. Hey folks, over here at 11FS, we're still working hard to build the next generation of financial services and our team is growing quickly. So we're looking for a bunch of new 11s to join us. If you or someone you know is up for a new challenge and a bit of a fintech nerd like us, check out the roles in consulting across product, engineering, design, delivery, and strategy. You'll find all the details at 11fs.com forward slash careers. Temenos is the world's leader in banking software, helping over 3,000 banks serve over 1.2 billion people. Our purpose is to make banking better. Together with our community, we make banks more successful, individuals better banked, and society better served. With our software, banks can create more human, differentiated digital experiences, hyper-efficient business models to benefit the bank and their customers, and simplify and transform their back office. Our clients are the highest performing banks with cost-income ratios which are twice better than the industry average. Learn more at temenos.com. Welcome to episode 548 of Fintech Insider. My name is Sarah Kachansky and I'm joined by my 11FS colleague, Adam Davis. How are you doing today, Adam? I'm very well, Sarah. How are you doing? I am good. I'm good. I am back in the studio. Uh, you are, I can, for, and potentially for the last time, you were about to say. I was, yes. I, I think it is the last time. Oh, yeah, say so, uh, this is a momentous occasion. Uh, your, your last podcast as host, I, sh- I should imagine you'll be back, um, but certainly the last one as host. Maybe you'll be back, but uh, <laughs> no, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's amazing. I think you've done, uh, the producers have told me you've done over, what, 120 shows, 125 shows across all our platforms, which is something quite, quite extraordinary. Um, I'm going to put you on the spot, horrifically. Uh, oh, God. But if there's a, uh, if there's a, one moment, because you often actually, whenever we talk to clients, you often talk a lot about the podcast and the people you've met and, and, and the things you've talked about. But I guess if there's anything in mind that you've got that you would share is sort of the top two, top three moments, that would be uh, that'd be awesome to hear. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> uh, that really is putting me on the spot. As you say, over 100. I think the ones that really stick in my mind are the live shows, you know, the after darks we do. Um, they are, they've been so much fun. And there is, it, it feels like stand-up comedy. I, I, I don't know, you know, when, when you do it, you're, you're sitting on a stage in front of a room full of drunk people and you have to be entertaining and funny or they will let you know. And I just think the energy that we got off those shows, and I think it really came across in the episodes as well, that it, it was it was such a different experience. So I, I think those have been my favourites. The one we could do them in front of people. The last two I've done, I've, I've been sat in an attic on my own, and that's, that's less fun, if I'm honest. <laughs> well, I have to say, in, in, to share to that tribute, I've got a beer in front of me, which I'm drinking to toast you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have a glass of wine, and, and, and one of our guests has a beer, even though she's in the States, which is um, excellent effort. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing stuff. So, so uh, with, with that in mind, I shall um, introduce today's guests. Uh, so making a very welcome return to the show, we have Carlo Guerlandri, founder and CEO at Soldo. Welcome back to the show. Uh, a really big week for you and the team at Soldo. So thanks for joining us. How are you doing today, Carlo? I'm very well. I'm very well. Thank you. And thank you for having me. 
And making her fintech insider debut uh, all the way from the States, we have Kate Drew, Director of Research at CCG Catalyst Consulting. Uh, Welcome to Fintech Insider. Great to have you with us. Um, Because it's your first time on the show, it would be great if you could give us a quick overview of CCG and the work you do there. Sure, absolutely. Um, Like you mentioned, I lead research at CCG Catalyst Consulting. We're a financial services consulting firm based in the U.S. We're focused uh, really on the intersection of of fintech and banking, and I manage our pipeline of research content both on the client side and externally through our publications as well. So very happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on. And thank you for making the effort to get a beer out, even though it's midday in the States. Uh, you don't have to drink it. But you know, thank you for making the effort to, to get I, one out for us. I have it just here to cheers you really. I am I am midday after all. So <laughs> for, for, for context, Kate and I used to work together. So I haven't just uh, been spamming our debutants telling them to bring alcohol to podcast recordings. Yes, you have, Sarah. Yes, you have. Don't worry. Yes, it's possible. It's possible. <laughs> All right. Well, there is so much news this week. Let's jump straight in. Okay. Well, our first story today is that Revolut has raised $800 million to become the UK's most valuable fintech. Uh, So the funding round values the loss-making business at $33 billion. The new funding round brings on board two new investors, SoftBank Vision Fund 2 and Tiger Global Management. The cash injection will be used to invest in its product suite and support the firm's expansion in the US, its entry to India and other international markets. The founder and CEO of Revolut says this funding round makes Revolut the UK's most valuable fintech, demonstrating investors' confidence that we can deliver products that raise the bar for customers' expectations across the whole financial services industry. Um, Okay, Adam, I know you have a few thoughts on this one because you were in fact quoted in several media publications. So I'll come to you first. Um, I guess the the big question or the question that a lot of people are asking is what about this valuation? It's it's incredibly large for a company that is still loss making. Yeah, it's it's throffy, uh, even by fintech standards uh, and, and today's standards. And we've you know, we've seen, a, uh, we're going to cover Robin Hood later on, who've got sort of a similar valuation as well. So you're starting to get the real big boys of fintech, I guess, you know, commanding, you know, 30 billion plus valuations, which is which is quite extraordinary. Um, I mean, Revolut's valuation itself has gone up about 6x in a year, where, as you say, they've reported increased losses. Um, but I, I think you've got to go back to the fundamentals of how, I suppose, valuations are contrived, what, what they're based on. And in pre-IPO funding round, you're looking at things like revenue growth per product line, you're looking at customer acquisition rates, you're looking at customer engagement rates, and you're looking at growth, potentially across geographies, but certainly obviously in customer numbers. And, you know, across those metrics, Revolut have made significant strides over the last 12 months. There's no doubt about that. Global customer base is up to 15 million personal customers, about half a million uh, small business customers, which is, you know, really, really good. Um, the subscription revenue is up, I think, 30%, uh, sorry, it's 30% of their total revenue this year is up 92% year on year, which is really significant. And that, I think, from a VC perspective, um, almost provides you with certainty of income. And I think, you know, it's a, it's a really sort of, um, uh, it's a metric in particular that we certainly as sort of fintech commentators have centered on because so many neobanks have struggled to get sort of their subscription-based revenue up to those kind of levels. So um, something really significant is happening there. They had an injection of uh, of revenue, obviously, from crypto, as you would expect, and they've expanded into new geographies. You know, they haven't got a UK or US banking license. They've stated they want to go to them, but they've, you know, they've got so much room to expand into regulated lending and get it back into the NIM game. I know there's, you know, compliance connotations with that. But, 
you know, I think if you wrap this up as in a in a rather large package, uh, all the growth metrics are there, uh, and ultimately valuations are based on what the company will do, not what it has done. And I think you know the conversion of those fifteen million customers and their engagement rates are such that you know uh, there's a lot of promise and untapped potential still left in the company, which is why you know an organisation like SoftBank. Um, who prides itself on taking companies to IPO is still obviously seeing a significant upside um, in order to do that, even though they've already stated that they might do that in, in the near future. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, Kate, I just wanted to come to you next because Adam Adam made a you know, huge range of points there. But one thing he did touch on was, was the crypto. And a, a lot of uh, the commentary, I suppose, in the media when uh, Revolut's most recent report came out, or, or sorry, the, the, the details surrounding their raids was around the, the reliance of Revolut, perhaps, maybe that's too strong a word, on, on crypto for for revenue. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Because I think that you, you had a look into that, didn't you? And, and, and was, were wondering about the reliance of businesses like this on that one sort of small industry, if you like, or area. Yeah, I mean, I think any time a business is reliant on, on one particular area and, and in particular, um, you know, a, a volatile area, um, you know, that there are questions around that. But I think for me, what's most interesting about this is kind of the bigger trend it, it speaks to that Adam touched on around how we have come to value companies around growth and specifically technology companies and fintech companies. Um, I worked in equity research for a really long time. So I'm, I'm always looking at the earnings, right? How much are you making in profit? And it's taken me even a really long time you know, on the fintech side to get used to, you know, there are different metrics here that we are looking at and, the, and there are different ways, ways that we are, are looking at that. And, and like Adam said, it's really about the potential. They're, they're not being valued so much on what they're doing today, but what they are going to do tomorrow. Yeah, no, no, that makes sense. It's, it's they uh, they see potential in in Revolut, so that's that's what they've put the money into. Um, uh, you know, Carla, to come to you, um, do, do you, what do you think about valuations generally? Because we've discussed that there is a lot of potential in Revolut, and, and I think we're agreed on that as as a group here. But do you think that that valuation is just too high, or as a company that's just raised money, are you wanting them to keep going up? <laughs> what what are your what are your thoughts on kind of this? I suppose the commentary that perhaps fintech valuations are in a bubble. Oh well, um, let's say that I have a vested interest uh, being a player in uh, in valuations uh, uh, going in one direction uh, because because well because of two things because basically makes money cheaper in terms of uh, dilution the moment you have to raise when you're still building and of course uh, it creates the interest uh, and uh, ultimately the potential reward for our um, shareholders. So yeah, of course it makes. Uh, uh, for a better world, uh, the moment you have a company and valuation for companies are going high. I have to admit that I, I've, I've stopped trying to uh, to rationalize any of those things. Uh, I consider <laughs> I consider I live in 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 two dimensions: uh, the the industrial dimension, where the metrics are what kind of value are you bringing to how many customers, real value. How can you measure that? Are you changing the life? Are you uh, are you producing real uh, improvements uh, in in the way they do business, uh, they, they manage their thing, and uh, the parallel world of uh, whatever the rational um, that is behind valuations. Not being, <laughs> not being a, a millennial entrepreneur, having been a millennial in the previous millennium, I have gone through <laughs> the roller coaster of uh, 
uh, this thing because, uh, uh, well, I was already building companies because that's what I did in all my life. Uh, but then I started building startups uh, in, in the beginning of the digital revolution. So the beginning of the Internet, actually, slightly before uh, when it's what it was not even clear if it was the Internet or the interactive television to be uh, the, the, uh, the key to, um, to the future, to the digital world. And I have seen a lot of up and a lot of down. Um, I have to say that uh, the companies that came in the second phase after the deflating of the bubble uh, were everything. We, we saw everything, uh, even really mycat.com uh, and of course pets.com and all the various famous examples. The, the, the companies that came later were incredibly valuable. Well, I, I, I mean, the Google, the Amazons, all those uh, companies that today are the big behemoth, uh, but they were incredibly profitable. They were really generating revenues and not just losing money. Um, not even Amazon. No, Amazon never willingly lose money, uh, lost money. In fact, they never raised a lot. They just used every single penny uh, uh, to, to build their business. So, you can't avoid thinking that, uh, well, a lot of the companies today, yeah, sure, are growing like crazy, but they are not showing uh, a growth uh, in earnings. Uh, and, uh, and and the question there is, uh, is just because you're delaying that, that growth mm. or because uh, you're still looking for whatever the formula is to convert uh, all the top line into the bottom line? Kate, did you want to jump in there? I think it's it's interesting that you you bring up Amazon because I think that's one of the earliest examples of a company that was valued on on their potential and and by Wall Street as well. You know, they would report losses and it was always because they could turn the tap on at any time, right? They were investing and investing and investing. So, I wonder, you know, for a lot of these companies today, for Amazon that tap was largely AWS and logistics, but for today and these companies, you know, what is that tap for them, you know, and and at what point does that switch flip? Um, I was going to make a suggestion that per- perhaps it's travel. <laughs> Adam, I don't know if you want to comment on this, but um, Revolut's latest, uh, so Revolut is known for launching a lot of products and services very quickly um, across the board. And, and so far, they've all been, you know, related to financial services. But the latest one that was announced uh, this week or the week that we're recording um, is that uh, Revolut's going to let you book hotels through its app. Mm. Um, and I just want to just want to talk about the parallel of Booking.com, a travel company, launched a fintech department and Revolut, a fintech, launched a travel company. And I'm I'm not sure I'm not sure I can handle this mashup in my brain just yet, particularly as I'm not actually allowed to leave this country. Uh, well, um, yeah, that, there yeah. is that. I mean, it's it's um, it's an interesting view on uh, different adjacencies. I think Booking.com, they've obviously they've actually launched a fintech unit. I think Booking.com, mm. so you yeah. know, which, which is going to have a a succession of different financial products underpinning, obviously, their core. Uh, customer experience, their core journey. Um, I think that's probably just an identification of the fact that it's a significant pain point for their clients and it's not a straight through process. And, you know, when people have to cancel and they have to be issued with refunds and whatever it might be, it's it's painful and they obviously want more ownership of that. Um, and I, you know, an organization like Revolut that started uh, and, and and its its bedrock is in FX, um, a lot of the initial, you know, product offerings that it did and feature offerings were around people, you know, moving abroad, uh, you know, going abroad and going on their travels it makes kind of sense that they'll sort of dive a little bit deeper into that going full out to book hotels and all sorts of other things is probably a pivot that i 
wouldn't necessarily have expected yet mm. um considering there's, there's there's probably untapped potential in in other in other areas within finance but listen it's uh it's proved itself profitable and again it taps into that you know that point around valuations it's a um you know there's no shortage of organizations like that who have raised you know big money or are looking to raise big money um off the back of those kind of um you know i suppose it was an e-commerce platform so you know it's it, it, it sort of makes sense if you think about it from a macro perspective, but I suppose in this adjacency, it is still a little bit of an odd one. Yeah, I think they possibly are going for the super app vibe, which is something we've seen a lot more of in Asia, but I'm not quite sure we're there yet. Um, Carlo, did you want to just make a final point on that before we move on? Yeah, yeah, I believe I believe that the macro pattern of all this hypergrowth inevitably will lead to I will sell everything to everybody. So I, I just amass a customer base and the promise is I will monetize them in any way possible, especially the moment uh, sort of the API economy is commoditizing everything else. I, I can sell I can sell travel today because travel is exists in a form that is a, a, a travel as a service for me mm. to package into a product. So basically what they are doing is, is being a super distribution company for anything. Fintech is nothing more than uh, a pluggable uh, set of services and, and travel and crypto and uh, investment and, and what next. So I believe that we're going to the super mall uh, model and, and sort of put everything on the shelves that they can put on a shelf. It's going to be it's going to be interesting to see how that model evolves um, outside of Asia. But I think there are a lot of people who are who are willing to give it a go. Um, all right. Well, on that note, I'm going to move us on to story two for today, which is that Soldo has raised $180 million for its business expenses platform. So Soldo provides a platform to issue employees with prepaid company cards that are linked to an automated expenses management system. By way of APIs, it also integrates with accounting packages such as QuickBooks and Xero, along with options to connect Soldo to more than 50 expense management platforms, including Concur and Expensify. Soldo currently has around 26,000 customers, ranging from SMEs to large multinationals across 30 countries, with Mercedes-Benz and Gymshark among some of the more recognizable brands. Soldo closed a $61 million B round in July 2019 and has since significantly increased the size of its business with more than 200 employees across offices in London, Dublin, Rome and Milan. Uh, Okay, Carlo, clearly I'm going to come to you first on this. First of all, did I get any of that wrong? Second of all, congratulations. Um, And third, what are you going to do with the money? Oh, well... uh... (laughs) What you you're, what are you gonna do with the money is the usual. Uh, you build more. Uh, we were saying that we are uh, at the very beginning and we need to build. Um, well, in our case, uh, uh, and we are in a more prosaic and uh, uh, and uh, uh, specific uh, environment than the glitzy uh, consumer fintech space. We do we do the boring part. Uh, we get excited about uh, uh, creating value in companies by optimizing processes. Oh, well. Uh, but the reality is there is so much to do. Uh, first of all, I would say we want to be the spend platform for companies. Uh, and just to say spend is uh, everything that has to do with uh, outgoing money in a company across all payment methods. Uh, so in a way, if you think of a company as a PNL, we are the guy doing uh, the movement of money and all the processes around uh, what 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 is in the cost uh, side. And this means a lot of use cases um, that you first address through general solutions and then progressively 
um, refine with vertical use case specific uh, uh, solutions. Every time you refine, you're adding a little bit more efficiency, a little bit more control uh, into what you do that progressively creates value uh, for uh, for the customers. And, uh, and the third thing, uh, very important, is integrations. Everything we do is not, uh, it doesn't exist in vacuum. We are building a, a hybrid between a SaaS company and a bank because we want to create the integration to avoid our customers having to do it themselves. So integration with everything in a company ecosystem um, is, uh, is very important. So in a way, we're not lacking things, uh, things to build. Uh, all these use cases that we have in front of us means our roadmap is known uh, for many years to come. And the second thing we will do as we build all these goodies uh, is, of course, we need to sell it and we need to bring the light to a lot of people who are suffering. It's a mission. It's not a, it's not commercial at all. Uh, we, <laughs> we feel it as really our duty to liberate uh, businesses from the spending chaos and to bring the light. Actually, our new 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 brand is all about light and and, uh, and the payoff of uh, the brighter way to manage spend. Uh, all nice cool things because really we want to do it and 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 coming back a little bit uh uh to earth and 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 uh, uh and avoiding the jokes the reality is yes we we have a, a european uh scope because of our regulation we're regulated in the uk and in uh, ireland and passported in all of europe so europe as a region between the two uh licenses is our um, target that means many markets languages segments industries so basically more of the product and more of the sales that that's and building the company to support it all so it sounds like you've only got a few things then just a couple <coughs> of things that you're just going to yeah, yeah, that's fair enough. No, it's, it's it's. I think it's a really interesting space actually, because I just want to talk about this. I think exactly to your point there, Carlo. We, a lot of the media attention focuses on the on the revolutes, perhaps, of this world, the consumer facing fintechs, the ones that kind of you know people carry a card and they can see it and they can use it in everyday life. But it feels like the sort of B two B space, if you like, is 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 picking up behind, uh, sorry, picking up pace. Um, you know, here in here in the UK or sorry here in Europe, we saw you know Plio recently, which which works in a similar space raising a, a decent amount a few weeks ago and to me that kind of almost like you know one one's a, a interesting twos oh this is picking up pace you know and, uh, is this a trend now do we think that investors have realized that this is a significant pain point that needs to be solved and there's huge opportunity here um adam i'm going to throw that one at you because you're looking at me very studiously is, oh is, no is, i wasn't is, is, oh dear you, okay no? no go for it no go for it go for no, it go for it all right knock yourself well, I'd, out <laughs> i'd say uh, look i think the uh we, we always look in markets i guess uh as, as Tam and Sam, so you know what's the target addressable, especially when you're doing a strategy piece and you're looking at, you know, w what's the total addressability of the market, and then actually, you know, how much of that market can you potentially service? Um, and I think Solda, I think this is this is uh, Carlo. This is from research that you guys have done, but you said you know the expense management market runs about 170 billion in Europe. So as a Tam, it's an extraordinarily big market. Um, and I think in addition to that, you know, SMBs. 
uh, even large corporates, but certainly maybe not mega large, but sort of the, you know, sort of above SMB going into above medium going into large corporates have been chronically underserved for the last umpteen years. And we know that just by the flood of fintechs that have sort of captured that space as Soldo have, you know, between the organization and then the underlying infrastructure that they need to connect to in order to get their taxes right and their returns right. And I have to say, I think what's really, I suppose, giving it a catalyst is some of the technology that we've got. So prepaid cards, you know, for instance, is, you know, a, a beautiful use case for expense management, you know, at its core, because, you know, you, but just by the mechanism of topping up, um, by some of the controls that the third party providers can give you, it is literally made for this use case. And I think that's why we've seen, you know, a lot of, you know, explosion with, with certain companies over the last sort of four or five years in this space in particular. Um, and also it was just, you know, as anyone will know who works in a big company at the moment, it's still very difficult. I mean, you know, the imprint that, you know, you guys have made, Carlo, you know, other organizations, you know, the spend desks and the plios, you know, it's it's still very very small in comparison to I imagine the businesses who still struggle with this day in and day out. So there's a long way to go, and there's lots of adjacencies to go in. Um, but as technology evolves and the integrations evolve, so this product becomes better and better, and, and, and will become a mainstay of businesses, I think going forward for sure. I mean, I mean to push that back to you, Carlo. Perhaps the point that Adam's just made that there's still a huge amount of growth in this space. How much did you see um, the pandemic? pushing companies into looking to do these things digitally was it did you think it was a driver for for maybe growth in your business or you know was it did it not have much of an impact on on the way that soldo was going oh yeah, yeah. it was a it was a, a a very significant driver we we, we believe this uh, uh this pandemic uh, has accelerated a number of trends uh, uh we we were seeing and the and the in the interest and the the attitude of companies by several years uh, in the way uh, we would have otherwise have planned to to build the category and, and and basically educate the market first of all let me say one thing i believe that now sort of this is going to be the decade uh, of uh, spend well not this not not now but in the next 10 years simply because uh, because we have seen the decade of payments when payments uh, were meant uh, bringing revenue in. So the strange thing in this industry is that payment as a word is used uh, in both uh, industries. The one that uh, means uh, receiving money and the one that means uh, uh, sending money out. And obviously, it's just a simple question of prioritization. The first industry that was developed was the one to bring the money in. And that is the, comp- the the industry that created the Stripe opportunity and Adian and Square and, and Checkout and, and whatnot. Um, enormous. And, and incredibly, as enormous as they are, every time you calculate, they're just a small bit of something that is even more, uh, more enormous. Um, okay, once you bring the money in, just think of it. Every single company, you could say all the money you get in minus your margin gets out. Uh, so so now you start to worry about the thing that, uh, uh, I don't know, on an average 30% margin uh, in the world uh, of companies, 70% of what you just uh, laboriously brought in is going to get out. And that's a big, big work, processes, control. You have the responsibility of the money. In a way, it's m- more difficult uh, than, than removing the friction for customers to pay you in. I believe this is going to be the journey uh, uh, the journey for us. And that's why the market is so big. Uh, we calculate, of course, as any calculation can be done in 1,000 ways, but 170 
a billion opportunity. It's not for us, our specific product, but it's basically the combination of all the logic and all the payments. The meaning of why a company take a decision all the way to when in the account uh, for a transaction and the actual execution of the transaction. So I believe uh, this is big and it is very, very linked for our specific uh, uh, segment of it to how, how digital the companies are. The more modern and digital they are, the more they get through a process of digital transformation, the more are in, uh, in target or the more they realize they need us. And that's why the pandemic was such a big accelerator. Because basically, yeah, of course, the pandemic killed the, the golden goose uh, of our industry. There was the easy TNE use case, uh, easy, super widespread, everybody... Well, it's nice because it's a, it's a use case that is equal in every single country, every single industry, every single company size. Your salesman is going around, uh, or saleswoman, uh, is going around, uh, jumping on a taxi, paying uh, for a hotel and the, the restaurant bill uh, of the dinner with the customer. So that's easy. And it was killed by the pandemic. But what, uh, what the pandemic did was accelerating the digital transformation of companies. And if I have to summarize that uh, in, a, in a single metaphor, everybody jumped on Zoom, but you have to pay Zoom with a card. Then everybody was locked at home, but you have to buy stuff on e-commerce with a card. Uh, and, uh, and, and everybody started selling their wares or services online, but you have to pay for your shop front, but even more, you have to pay for the fuel of that uh, that is your online advertising with a card and these are just examples of companies transforming digitally and with that transformation there is a big shift of share of spend between traditional methods of payment and suppliers into a brand new world you don't have a server anymore in the basement you have a SaaS, and you pay that with a card and the key thing that we do in all this world uh, where, where this digital transformation is basically shuffling the deck and, and allowing us to say, hey, we are here exactly with what you need, is the fact that uh, the thing that doesn't exist in the world of money today in businesses is the concept of delegation under control. That is the key thing. The pain in any company, actually, the bigger the company, the bigger the pain, is how can I give Sarah this amount of money to do what she needs to do because what happens is that I am empowering Sarah to take all the decision in the world and she's a super uh, powerful manager. She can do whatever she wants, but when it comes to money, you have to come back to daddy, that is the CFO, and I will see if I <laughs> will be Our CFO is a woman. I'm just going to put that out there. Our CFO <laughs> is a woman. <laughs> All right, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pause us there because we do need to move on. But I totally understand your point that you know it's a, it's about empowering people and making sure that you can you know let people get on with things but in a controlled way. Um, all right, so we're we're gonna uh, we're gonna take a quick break here. Um, you guys are gonna hear from our sponsors, and we'll be back very shortly. Blockchain Insider, our podcast dedicated to all things crypto, is back by popular demand. Join me, Simon Taylor, alongside Visa's head of crypto, Kai Sheffield, as we're joined every other week by special guests to discuss their take on the hottest crypto news. We'll also be diving into DeFi, stablecoins, NFTs, and a whole lot more. 
New episodes drop every other Wednesday. Listen and subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. Customers expect more from their digital experience and their personal finance is no exception. BlueShift empowers fintechs and financial institutions to create secure customer profiles and intentional, relevant experiences for customers. Whether in-app, on-site, in-branch, or anywhere else, BlueShift's Smart Hub CDP helps brands like LendingTree and ClearScore turn data into personalized experiences that increase retention, satisfaction, and revenue. Learn more about BlueShift at blueshift.com forward slash 11FS. Okay, welcome back to part two. So our first story this half is that Square has launched a small business banking offering. So Square Banking will offer small businesses savings and checking accounts, as well as its existing lending offering, which has been renamed Square Loans. Square Checking will have no account minimums, overdraft fees or recurring fees, and savings accounts will offer a 0.5% annual percent yield on deposits. The new services come following the launch of the company's Industrial Bank, which began operations in March after completing the charter approval process with the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, FDIC, and the Utah Department of Financial Institutions. Uh, The bank is part of efforts by Square to expand its revenue streams beyond facilitating card payments for small businesses, though I would argue that Square already does a little bit more than that. Um, But I've taken that from the article that was put in front of me today. Um, Kate, you are our resident US expert. So what are your thoughts on this? Uh, Just generally, I suppose, uh, Square becoming a bank, the the licensing process, how it's gone about launching these services, go for it, whichever takes your fancy. (laughs) So I think from a, a product and services standpoint, standpoint, right? This makes a whole lot of sense. I don't think it was very surprising to anyone. Um, we've known that the industrial bank has been operating for, for a, a little bit of time now. Um, and I think this really does two things. It, it makes Square stickier with clients on the deposit side, and it gives them capital to fund loans on the lending side. So it's kind of creating that classic virtuous cycle in banking. And I think they'll be very successful at it because they're tailoring all of these services to their merchants and to their clients very well, whether that's, you know, no fee accounts or providing access to cash flow at the point of sale. Um, I think they'll do very well here. As far as Square becoming a bank more generally, the mechanics of that are very interesting to me. So in the U.S., There are different kinds of charters. It's not as simple as just becoming a bank. And one of the things that you'll notice is that they are going to provide the savings accounts through their industrial bank, and they will continue to partner with their sponsor bank, uh, Sutton Bank, for for the checking account. So immediately when I saw that, I'm I'm wondering why, right? Um, They're a bank now. Why aren't they just porting everything over. And there could be, you know, many reasons why they chose to do this at play here. Um, One factor, though, that may be involved is that they have what is called an industrial loan company charter. So they're an ILC, which means they're restricted when it comes to demand deposits or um, transactional banking. And so, you know, there could be different elements at, at play here, but I do think an important point to make is that in the U.S., there are different kinds of charters that enable you to do different things. And it's interesting to me to see fintechs entering the regulatory system in different ways, depending on what they're after. Vero, for example, 
um, they went the whole way. They, they went for a full national bank charter. So I think it'll be really interesting to see how the charter plays into Square's strategy over time, how they leverage it, how it plays into the services that they offer. Um, but for me, continuing to partner with Sutton Bank after getting the charter is, is what really stood out from this announcement. Yeah, no, that is really interesting. And I think that we have a tendency to forget, perhaps particularly in the UK, where things are, I'm going to say in inverted commas, easy. Uh, you just need a bank license and you can get on with holding money and, and lending it back out again, that the US has such a different regulatory system and that it is so incredibly complex and there are so many different sort of options. And I guess, you know, when you're strategizing as a, as a fintech in the US as to which option you want to take, it's, there's an awful lot more routes you, you could go down. Um, so I, I think it's... So Sorry, yes. No, I was just going to say, I mean, in this way, they're they're kind of taking almost a hybrid mm. approach, which, you know, is is designed around their specific strategy. So I think it will be very interesting to see how it evolves. Do you think you'd see anybody else doing that hybrid? Is it something that other banks or other, oh, sorry, other fintechs are going to watch and think, oh, that, that's a way to do it. Then we get the best of both worlds. Or they're going to be like, no, that's too much outlay on regulatory, uh, 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 you know, abiding by the by the rules and regs. I think it depends on, on the fintech and, and what it is you really want to do, right? Um, it, it really comes back to what your strategy is. For, for a company like Vero, I mean, for them, they wanted, you know, the NA next to their, next to their name. They wanted to be able to operate fully. Um, so I, I think it depends really on what your strategy is and what you're trying to do. It's also, I mean, it costs Vara about $100 million to get that yes, license, yes. so it's not cheap. Um, that was so my the, point about where you're I mean, going to, to spend your resources. To, to, to be honest, I mean, Square is one of those companies that could probably afford it, but it's, um, but it, uh, the process in itself takes, what, three years, and it's quite a waterfall, I guess, relatively linear process. So it's not something you can just turn on, you know, immediately. So it, it's a significant capital uh and probably operational, you know, undertaking if you're going to do that. Yeah, I mean, I think that's an interesting point to, to note as well. Just it's, it's a heavy capital outlay, but also there aren't that many fintechs that have done any of these things, really, you know, saying, oh, they're going to follow the hybrid approach or the great for a national charter. It, there really aren't that many that have gone for it and gone all the way through and succeeded. So it's it's a definitely a developing market. Um, you, know, you know, Adam, I'll, I'll come over to you and, and sort of talk about this, you know, the, the SME market, which we've kind of touched on a little bit in the first half of the show. But do you think that... That this is, um, you know, this is a particularly good way for Square to really capture that holistic SME market. So they already provide so many services to, to small businesses. Do you think this is like the final step before a small business never interacts with anybody other than Square ever again? Uh, yeah, I mean, look, it's, it's obvious if you if you've got your checking account now with Square, you've got your debit card which already existed with Square. If you get a loan with Square, if you're um, if you've got your POS terminal which was obviously the first, you know, the original Square, Square product when they operated as a payments facilitator. If you've got that through Square, then they can offer you some quite funky stuff that you can probably do that you can't do if one of those relationships went outside the Square ecosystem. For instance, things like, you know, getting advanced on cash flow, um, taking out loans via sales, which is stuff that Stripe does and PayPal does. And really Square, I think, is just sort of entering that space. But that's the kind of competition now that it that, that, that it's up against. But then it's also held in that esteem. I think the one thing um, about Square, which which I've always loved, is that they're 
um, they, they sort of tapped into the cultural zeitgeist, I guess, of SMEs. Um, and they were very, you know, they were incredibly mission, you know, mission driven company when they first started a fair few years ago. Um, interesting to see though, that the branding on this particular proposition is slightly different to, let's say something like the cash app, which is, I suppose the equivalent, but from a personal perspective, the cash app is, you know, looks vastly different to what this does. This is sort of more square traditional branding. Um, I don't know if there was any sort of background to that or, or why I haven't read, read the details into it but there's no doubt that you know if you've got all of these different components there is as you know as Kate mentions there's the licenses un underbelly under that so in terms of the margin that they're taking and the revenue they're taking they can increase that you know over time as they pull those services in-house but there's no doubt that if you're in the square ecosystem then you can definitely benefit from from things that you couldn't do otherwise. Yeah, I mean, just to just throw to, to Carlo before we move on, this is, a, I think, a really interesting point that you were touching on earlier, this idea of, of small businesses um, needing service providers that can connect them to an ecosystem. Do you think that that's more important when you're a small business than when you're a consumer to have this, you know, ability to tap into lots of different services through one portal or one, one interface? Or, or do you think it's, it's, it's equally valid, it's just different services? No, no, it's, it's drastically more important in the business because... Uh, uh, because of a number of uh, uh, unique characteristics that a business customer has, again, uh, as compared to, uh, to a consumer uh, customer, uh, just, just think of it one thing, the basicest, the, the most basic, the most stupid thing. When you are a consumer, you are spending money after taxes. So basically, you've already paid your taxes. Do what your money, whatever you want. You don't have to answer to anybody else what you do with your money. When you are a business, you are spending money out of your revenues and then you calculate the profit. That is how you calculate your taxes, ultimately. The amount of uh, uh, tracking, justification, data and, uh, and uh, evidence uh, that you need to uh, gather as a business just for the simple act of calculating what is a deductible cost rather than not makes the act of moving one pound or dollar uh, as a business, uh, a completely different endeavor uh, than that, uh, that of, a, um, of a consumer. And around that, there is a complex ecosystem of services. So yes, that's important. The other thing that typically is important is as a business, you typically are more than one. And so as a company with multiple stakeholders, you have to respect anything from the proper uh, accounting rules, uh, your duty as a good father of the uh, of the company, always or good mother, of course, uh, in order to uh, to to make uh, uh, proper, responsible use of the money, compliance with taxes, compliance with all sorts of things. Every single one of these is a process, is a service, is somebody else uh, doing something for you. That's why I believe the the business uh, ecosystem is so much. Uh, much more uh, complex and richer uh, than the consumer one. All sort of well, everything I've, I've said is very boring uh, stuff, you know. Uh, but, but it's the not boring. boring. Stuff, it's no, where it's the, the money is. Stuff that needs to be done. <laughs> Yeah. 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 It's, it's, I think, I think, I think that's what's been realized now is it's, it's boring, but it needs to be done. And there's a lot of people who need it to be done. So that's where you can make the money. All right. I'm going to move us on now to uh, our IPO roundup. Okay. So Robinhood is seeking a market valuation as high as $35 billion from its upcoming IPO, while Paytm is looking to IPO in India and raise $2.2 billion. 
Um, so uh, Robinhood announced the valuation it was seeking earlier this week. Um, the stock trading app will attempt to sell 55 million shares at a range of 38 to $42 per share to raise as much as $2.3 billion. The company estimates it has 22.5 million funded accounts, those tied to a bank account, up from 18 million in the first quarter of 2021. Not to be outdone, in this same week, Indian digital payments giant Paytm is seeking to raise up to $2.2 billion in an IPO. Paytm says it will use the proceeds to grow its payments ecosystem and invest in new areas, make acquisitions and build partnerships. It was last valued at $16 billion in 2019, but its price is thought to have risen substantially in a market where regulatory pressure for a move away from cash and the COVID-19 pandemic have combined to create a perfect storm for digital Payments. Uh, all right, Adam, I know you have thoughts on Robinhood. Do you want to go first on this? Do you think this is a ridiculous valuation based on, you know, what you said earlier about Revolut? Or is this, does this make sense to you? No, go, go back to the fundamentals of what, you know, as we talked about earlier on in the show, you're talking about pre-IPO valuations based on growth. Um, you're looking at, you know, an organization which um, has grown significantly over the last 12 months and it's captured that um sort of, uh, I suppose, do-it-yourself DIY trader um, that market so well that actually it's faced a backlash from it, of course, you know, with infamous with all the, the GameStop uh, and AMC stuff that happened a few months ago. Um, but it's, you know, it's it, it's central at the moment to, you know, the new way that, that, that a lot of sort of retail investors and DIY investors w- want to invest. Um, massively different to Paytm uh, in terms of an organization. But, I, you know, I think in... Uh, it, it's going to be a really, um, I think of any IPO that I can remember, I think those who know fintech are sort of waiting for the Stripe IPO because that's like, mm. you know, that's like the, the granddaddy of, of, of fintech IPOs, which will obviously be at even three times this valuation. But I think for, for consumer sentiment and interest, I think everyone will look at this. I'll be interested to know actually if they're doing a direct listing or not because um, it says that they're selling 55 million of their uh, of shares, which indicates that it could be a direct listing rather than a uh, a straight up IPO. I don't know whether well, I, I, I don't know. I believe if they're trying to sell shares and they have set a range, that's that's a quite traditional book building process and it's traditional IPO. When you do a direct listing, you're not really selling, if not the fact that later on you can do private placement. Yeah, I mean, one thing I did want to, to bring up, perhaps that you can comment on, Kate, but, but you know, being in the US and looking at the market, perhaps from a slightly different angle, is it's interesting to me that Robinhood has gone ahead with this uh, size of valuation a few days after it was it was fined quite heavily by uh, by the SEC. Um, do you do you think the controversy, you know, around Robinhood's actions should have affected its valuation, or, or do you think they have affected its valuation, perhaps? And, you know, I suppose, yeah, generally, what are your thoughts around that? Around that, I, you're coming in and out, so I don't know if you're there or not. <laughs> so I think I read a piece recently in the Generalist that said the S one Robinhood's S one gave the impression that it can't decide if it wants to be the most serious fun company or the most fun, serious company. And I think that that sort of sums up all of this, right? I It has had a number of missteps, not only recently, but, you know, over the past several years and, and gotten, you know, some negative press, but it's also overcome all of this tremendously. It's actually, you know, generated incredible user numbers just in the last year. So I think, you know, 
Has it affected its valuation? Maybe, but I think Robinhood is definitely an example of a company that has been able to overcome and overcome and overcome, even though it's constantly straddling that line between seriousness and and playfulness. That's interesting because I would say that perhaps it's in the same bucket as, as Revolut then, which has also had um, some, shall we say, run-ins with regulators uh, sort of uh, across across Europe, actually. Um, Carlo, did you want to jump in there? I believe not. It's... it's- uh, related to the to the concept we were talking before, valuation. What is the sense? What is the logic? Uh, what is the uh, the model that can justify that? I believe there is a difference here, even though the the numbers could be similar between uh, Revolut valuation and and Robinhood, um, and the fact that the Revolut got the valuation from two investors. Now you can invent, you can convince two people, you can you can have people loving you, they can take any decision, two people and probably a score of people doing uh, doing a, a very good analysis ended up with the valuation. Whatever valuation will come out for uh, Robinhood, they will be on the market. But here, I believe we have a very interesting synergy because if Robinhood is able to sell Robinhood to the Robinhood market, so if they are able to pull a GameStop moment on their own stock, I believe uh, they can really do something, uh, uh, well, something uh, peculiar, uh, get a lot of money and, and a very high valuation, and then we'll see what happens because, well, even in, even in GameStop, there was an after. Not, yes. not very not very chronicled, but the reality was that. So I think it's, it's interesting. It's like crowd, crowdfunding on your own uh, on your own customer. I'm quite sure that a lot of Robin Hood uh, customers will want to be in uh, that IPO. So Absolutely. we'll see what, 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 what will happen. That, that's something that worked very well for not uh, perhaps as in the same terms or perhaps in the same language or perhaps the same methods, but worked very well for Wise recently when it when it listed in the UK, it offered preferential, you know, um, shares to, to do its existing customers. Um, Kate, did you want to, to jump in there? Yeah, I think I do think that that Robinhood customers will be very keen to to buy the stock and I think that this is a very good way of kind of bringing them into the IPO because I also think that that customer base is wary of Robinhood becoming too much of this kind of large corporate regulated entity. Um and kind of maintaining its spirit of, of the democratization of, of trading. So I think pulling them, them into, into the IPO. And, um, you know, I, I think, I think that that will go a long way in, in kind of keeping its, its base, you know, connected to the company and connected to the brand. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see to see what happens, uh, as you say, with with its customers' actions, and, and in fact with the listing, because we've seen so many IPOs and they've gone every which way, you know, over the last twelve months. It's it's a great time to IPO for some companies. It's a terrible time to IPO for other companies. Um, the market seems to be a, a bit up and down. Um, Adam, I just wanted to sort of, sorry, I was thinking about delivery when you, you scaled at me there. Was the, <laughs> it didn't, didn't go so well for them. Um, just want to, to bring it back before we move on to, to Paytm. So you said they were sort of a very, very different sort of beast. Um, what, what, are your, what are your thoughts on Paytm's decision to IPO now? Do you, do you think, you know, given that they're in a different market, it's still a good time for them? Do you think that they're in a, a good place to do this? Yeah, I think, uh, again, it, it's a, uh... It's an absolute behemoth of a payments company um, with you know some significant investors behind them, um, 
and you know ultimately you know you're, you're seeing i think certainly in in India, you're seeing a lot of uh, U.S. companies, uh, Chinese companies, getting involved, and, and sort of uh, th there's an enormous battleground for payments and for other financial services products that's currently going on there. Um, and it's actually one of the, I suppose, one of the geographies at the moment where sort of the big tech from the east is meeting the big tech from the west. So you know, there's obviously pressure from their perspective to be able to raise additional monies in order to compete in the race. And you've seen, you know, WhatsApp pays there, Google's there, Amazon's there, Walmart's there, everyone, you know, everyone's moving there, especially from uh, the West, which is relatively rare in the East, they're already there. And I think like, you know, you, you've at the moment when you've got a battleground, which is, you know, India's like the atypical Sequoia market, you know, the growth there is just absolutely, you know, could be phenomenal. And from there, you've got a base to, you know, launch into all different directions, you know, all different geographies. Um, and they're obviously doubling down on the fact that they have to do it now, otherwise they, you know, th their lunch might be eaten. And, and mm. especially when you look at like the influx of digital services that's going to happen uh, in India and the surrounding areas over the next five years or so, you know, dig digital literacy is going up. Um, online payments is going to be going up. This is, you know, this is the time to strike if they're going to, if they're going to want to grow from here. Well, to go back to the first story we covered today, Revolut is looking at going to India. It's, you know, seen Tide also in this country looking at India. So it's clearly a market that people want a piece of. Um, and hopefully Paytm can, can, you know, make it pay from being there from the beginning. Um, all right, we're going to move on now to the part of the show where we quickly round up some of the other stories from the week that we didn't have time to cover, but which we think still deserve a shout out. All right, Adam, do you want to kick us off? Uh, yes, I will. This first one's from TechCrunch. Uh, it's that Yappily has raised $51 million for its open banking API. Uh, so this is uh, the open banking infrastructure provider. Yappily uh, has closed $51 uh, million on its Series B, uh, taking its total rate to date to $69 million. The funding round was, left by, uh, was led sorry, by Sapphire Ventures, uh, which has invested in the likes of Currency Cloud, LinkedIn, and Wise. Uh, throughout the pandemic, Yappily saw its customer growth increase uh, 3.5 times as a global commerce, uh, obviously, shifted to online. And with the cash, they intend to launch new markets, including France, Spain, uh, get deeper in the UK, Italy, Germany. It looks like they're going all around Europe. Um, I think um, for me, uh, it's, it's a really interesting company, Yappily. Uh, I've, I've actually known them for, for, for quite a while. Um, I think if you look at their coverage across Europe, I think they're connected to around 1,500 banks, which is the same sort of coverage as Tink's got, and it's quite extensive. Um, and they say they've got sort of above 90% coverage uh, in the UK. And if you imagine that Tink just got sold to Visa, I think it was for $2 billion. Um, someone can, can correct me on that if I'm wrong. Um, it obviously means that you know the scope and the opportunity for these open banking players is, 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 is enormous. If you think about also the addition service or which is a to a payments which is uh getting better and better we had um, i interviewed true layer on on a podcast not too long ago and they were talking about the rise of a to a payments and what a, you know how different that what a difference that's going to make to their business model and what difference it makes to conversion um there's an enormous scope and opportunity to grow into that space, whereas, you know, over the last sort of four or five years, the technology and the connections hadn't really been there to make that sort of a substantial user journey uh, and customer journey. So, you know, I'm, I'm really excited. Like, I love seeing the open banking. You know, most of these guys, you know, are less than sort of five five to ten years old. And I love seeing, you know, some of the, uh, the valuations that have been placed on them now because I actually, you know, we've been talking about frothy valuations, but, you know, I see these guys as being, you know, at the centerpiece of, you know, financial infrastructure 
infrastructure for you know the next umpteen years so it's um you know congratulations to them i hope, I hope they do well yeah you and i have a have a bit of an open banking soft spot don't we anybody we do. who, yes. yeah <laughs> having hosted an after dark or two on the subject um all right the next story today is that serena williams has invested in credit building startup isuzu i apologize if i said that wrong um, so the tennis superstar has joined a $10 million investment round in Izuzu, a fintech startup that helps renters build their credit score through her Serena Ventures Fund. Over 45 million Americans do not have credit scores. Uh, Izuzu's rent reporting capabilities solve for this by capturing and reporting rental payments to the largest credit bureaus. Uh, the company also provides zero interest housing stability funds to help renters facing financial hardship avoid eviction. Uh, so Isuzu is really focused on credit building and creating pathways to financial inclusion for not only working families, but for individuals as well. Their services also make rent reporting seamless, finally giving renters credit for what is often their largest expense every month, says Williams. Um, so, you know, I think all, all products like this are brilliant. As somebody who paid rent in London for 10 years and it never counted towards my credit score, I think any service that, you know, takes that into account is hugely important. I, I, I pay the same amount now my mortgage as I did on my rent one counts the other doesn't that that seems hugely unfair particularly if you're in a demographic where achieving a good credit score is particularly difficult um, I also just love to see anything that either of the Williams sisters invests in because they're always really, really interesting companies and they're always focused on demographics that are completely underserved. Um, so I, I don't know much about what else Serena Williams has invested in, but Venus Williams has invested in Elvest, which is a, a, a robo-advisor or an investment management company, which is particularly targeting women and takes into account, you know, women's lifestyles, the fact they're more likely to take time off to have children. Um, so I think, you know, th those two do a really good job with choosing the companies they invest in. And I think attaching their names to, to, to these companies can, can only benefit them as well. So I think this, I think that's a great story. Um, as a, as a non-tennis fan, I'm still really pleased. All right, Adam, back to you. <laughs> yeah, the last one, uh, this was from PR Newswire. Uh, this is around Treasury Prime, which is a banking in the service uh, API platform company, um, has announced a customizable card controls to increase transactions while reducing fraud. So they've they've launched a service, which I think is on the Marketa suite. Uh, it's sort of a, a off the shelf functionality that you can you can sort of switch on if you um, if you partner with Marketa. Um, but it gives customers basically the ability to enable more uh, potentially larger transactions uh, and also it sort of change, I suppose, the card controls which are placed on um, transactions which obviously go through their institution. This, if anyone's run a card program before, um, this is kind of the holy grail. Um, you kind of want the ability to be able to set your own controls and your own parameters and limits so that, you know, you can do some clever stuff um, in terms of, uh, you know, the ability to sort of change limits and um, offer um, organizations, you know, different types of product innovation. Um, and what it will mean for a lot of those organizations is that instead of having to um, uh, integrate, I guess, back into the bank, especially if this is a tier one or tier two that's starting a new product, instead of having to integrate back into you know, the compliance function or the banking controls of you know the organization, actually, you can do this straight through Marketa and actually retain the control yourself. Um, which I think is is amazing. It's a bit of a game changer. Um, the one thing I would say is that in order to do this and to do this well, I'm interested to understand the checks and balances that you'd have to have 
as the organization who's setting these the, the, these controls because they're saying you know they're advocating that this is going to reduce fraud but it's only as good as the controls that you set if that makes sense so mm. it's probably got a long way to go in term and there's probably a support team that would need to sit behind it but obviously if you're an organization you want to pull this functionality in-house then this enables you to be able to do that and i think that's you know card management programs have been crying out for this for a long, long time. Uh, and it looks like the technology is just caught up. So uh, yeah, really, really interested to see how this manifests and uh, get my hands on it, actually, <laughs> on, <laughs> on some of the programs that we're running. All right. Well, uh, let's bring everybody back for the final story of the week. So uh, and finally, story this week is that the FCA has lost £300,000 worth of electronic devices. Uh, the news arises a year after it issued a warning to businesses to be responsible when handling client data. So the UK regulator, the Financial Conduct Authority, or FCA, has misplaced a total of 323 electronic devices, estimated to be worth £310,600 over the past three years, uh, which raises questions around data protection. In the most recent financial year, lost devices at the FCA surged by 369%, with 197 devices being reported missing, worth an estimated £193,400. The breakdown was four decimal desktops, 68 laptops, two mobile phones, and 123 tablets. This comes as last year, the FCA issued a warning to businesses, uh, as I said, to be responsible when handling client data. Uh, when it comes to their own devices, the FCA say they have a strong security measures in place. We use encryption to protect information on FCA devices and two-factor authentication to ensure only authorised individuals can access the FCA's network. Uh, that doesn't really explain or help the fact that they've lost so many devices. I have many questions. First of all, how do you lose a desktop, let alone four? And secondly, how did the number of laptops lost go up when nobody was commuting? I'm I'm baffled. Uh, Adam, I'll come to you first. Do you have any explanation for this? No. I mean, I would like to see what the average... We, we seem our government agencies in the UK seem to lose a lot because I, I remember we uh, I can't even remember what it was was it the Ministry of Defence was leaving stuff at bus stops not so long ago and things of that nature um, oh yeah leaving briefcases and portfolios that was it, yeah just, briefing, yeah. yeah just uh, just lying about I, I would be interested to know that the size and scale of an organisation like the FCA benchmarked across other industries you know is this a lot or a little like um, I know the FCA are in a little, little bit of a different position because of the nature of the, the data that's being lost but I'd be interested to know whether you know four desktops 68 laptops two mobile phones i mean two mobile phones doesn't actually seem that much and 123 tablets if that's a lot in relation to the scale of the fca i, I don't know um but it, yeah hard to lose things when you're not on the move i would have thought but oh well uh, uh, if i read it probably it's misplaced i don't know it could have <laughs> oh, been right, yeah. <laughs> so it's lost under a pile of cushions in the living to be room found. Uh, i don't know during a move uh, a truck uh, with a couple of desktops uh, went uh, uh, the wrong way and uh, who knows uh, what it can be but it's strange that yes double the amount of desktops than mobile phones you wouldn't expect that um, Kate, what what are your thoughts on this? What, what do you think would happen in in the US if a regulator were to lose this many devices? Or maybe it's more common there. I don't know. Um, I mean, I think it's quite embarrassing. It's it's quite embarrassing, you know, um, for the FCA, and I'm sure it would be quite embarrassing in the US as well. I don't know how you lose uh, desktop computers, but hopefully they can wipe them remotely because I, I know that, that the, the article mentioned that, you know, everything is encrypted and it's safe and all of that, but I would hope that you'd be able to 
wipe the devices remotely somehow um, at that point, right? You don't want to just rely on the encryption. Yeah, you have to hope so. I mean, we have to hope that all that's happened is that those devices have been lost and that's the, that all that's been lost, sorry, is, is that amount of money. It's not, you know, anything more sensitive than that. All right. Well, we're going to wrap up this week's news show there. Thank you so much to all of our guests. Where can people find out more about you, Kate? You can find me at Kate Drew at ccgcatalyst.com or on Twitter at KM Drew. Perfect. Carlo, how about you? Well, you can find me in my uh, more expansive form at www.soldo.com because I'm, I'm not particularly socialized. So if you were to log into my Twitter account, you would be waiting years before you see anything. <laughs> That's fine. That's fine. Uh, Adam, how about you? Uh, best place is probably on LinkedIn or I'm on Twitter at AdamD8 or 11FS.com. And as for me, you can find me on Twitter at Sarah Kachansky. Thank you so much for listening. If you like what you've heard, subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to leave us a review. It helps to make it better and it helps others to find the show. As always, if you want to join the conversation, find us on social media. Just search for 11FS or Fintech Insider or email podcast at 11FS.com. I still have to read that after 125 episodes. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.